0: Think again.
1: We've all made New Year's resolutions. The first day of the new year carries the promise of new beginnings and new hope. This was especially true for the four men of Raven 23 on the first day of 2010. Just the day before, Judge Ricardo Urbina issued a scathing criticism of both the Bush and Obama administration's tireless efforts to prosecute them for crimes they didn't commit. They were free, for the first time in three years, to make resolutions that weren't shadowed by the threat of prison.
2: I remember we were out at Kristen's parents' um, and all of us, of course, were just thrilled. But in a sense, it was kind of bittersweet because we never really got to tell our side of the story. And frankly, we haven't got to do that to this point.
3: Our attorneys advised every one of us not to testify at our first trial, and we just implicitly trusted that and thought that was the best route to go, despite not even putting up a defense. Nevertheless, after Judge Rabina had thrown out the case, we, we felt
2: just a, an
3: incredible amount of just relief knowing that we were out from the burden of, of Leviathan.
2: Even with the threat of them bringing it back, there was still just a, a just a feeling of, of freedom.
3: Let's put it this way Hannah was born in 2005. Whenever I got home, we wanted to have another child. And, you know, it's difficult to even talk about this because. When you're in a circumstance to where you're facing all these charges and everything, it's a hard decision to bring another life into the world because of the uncertainty. We held up on having children because of this case. And so when the case was dismissed, we decided to go ahead and and have another child.
4: Ironically, the group of people in Washington, D.C. were starting off their new year with a counter-resolution for the men of Raven 2-3. What was it? To drag them through the federal court system yet again. Who cares what Urbina had to say? Who cares that the men are innocent? Sacrificing four American contractors could be a symbolic step towards President Barack Obama's campaign promise to end the ill-conceived wars in Iraq and
2: Afghanistan. In the beginning of 2010, as soon as I was cleared, I went down to the navy recruiter and and spoke to the navy recruiter and decided that i wanted to go back in the military i wanted to be in the seals but i started to realize that um, the ordeal was not totally finished and that the government was going to appeal the decision i never in a million years thought that that i would be recharged and have to go through the whole process again
4: This was exactly what D.C. federal judge Urbina had warned the Justice Department against in the case involving the Chinese Uyghurs. Do not use the courts to achieve political ends. But these were ambitious people and everyone seemed to want to ride the coattails of this politically incendiary case. Doing so brought the promise of a better job, enhanced political popularity, but best of all, a shot at redemption for previous political sins. This was just too good a crisis to go to waste.
1: with one of the most unusual and lengthy criminal court battles you may ever hear about. It was about. one of the worst killings of innocent, block innocent block civilians
5: in by U.S. contractors in Iraq. The
6: four and guards claimed they were ambushed while escorting so diplomatic Washington officials. Washington convicted four back.
5: former Blackwater security guards in the 2007 shootings and killings of dozens of unarmed Iraqi From
1: soldiers. Think Again Studios, this is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating. got mail. Any New Year's resolutions that Harold Coe had made would have to wait. On January 2nd, 2010, the top legal advisor at the State Department got an email from his boss, Hillary Clinton. She had a resolution he needed to make his top priority.
7: Harold, first, happy New Year to you and your family, and thank you for all your great work this past year. I am looking forward to the year ahead. Second, what can we do about Judge Urbina's ruling? Can the US file a civil action against the company? Pay restitution to the
1: victims? What other options do we have? All the best, H. Why would the new Secretary of State, a lawyer herself, resurrect a Bush administration case that was declared dead on arrival and by a judge elevated to the federal bench by her husband, President Bill Clinton.
4: Clinton appointed Urbina to the U.S. District Court in 1994, about a year into his presidency. A great deal had changed since Urbina took the bench. Hillary Clinton went from first lady to U.S. Senator. She lost the 2008 Democratic presidential primary to Obama and now was biding her time at the State Department, hoping to follow him as president when his two terms were done. Her fellow cabinet member, Attorney General Eric Holder, also owed his position to Bill Clinton. The president had elevated Holder from the D.C. Superior Court bench to Assistant U.S. Attorney under Janet Reno. He was the first Black American to be appointed to that post. Under President Obama, Holder achieved another landmark as the first Black Attorney General. To revive the case, Clinton and Holder would have to cooperate, and they had a problem. To overcome Urbina's scorched earth ruling, they'd need a new set of facts that could play on an international stage. But Holder had shown more loyalty to the third member of this drama, Vice President Joe Biden. Holder sat on Obama's Vice Presidential Search Committee and passed over Hillary. This was done despite Hillary's strong showing in the 2008 primary. Instead, Holder and the other two search committee members chose Joe Biden. Biden had torpedoed his own run for president with a number of racially insensitive comments. Who can forget this remark he had about Barack Obama?
5: I mean, you got the first sort of mainstream African American yeah. who was articulate and bright and, and, and clean and nice looking guy. I mean, it's, that's a storybook, man.
4: And why quit with the patronizing insults there? In
5: Delaware, the largest growth in population is Indian Americans moving from India. You cannot go to a 7 Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. It's a Am I, I'm not joking. It's it's cool. Oh, gigantic.
4: But it wasn't just the comments. Hillary absolutely destroyed Biden in a head to head matchup in the 2008 Democratic primary. She won over 16 million votes just a fraction of a percentage point less than Obama. But it was 16 million more votes than Biden had won. Biden withdrew from the race after a disastrous showing in Iowa. He was roundly rejected by the voters and managed to attract only a single percentage point at the caucus. By the time Hillary conceded to Obama months later, Hillary had beaten Biden by a margin of 250 to one in votes. But at least Biden made it to the starting gate in that election. In his first campaign for president back in 1988, he had to withdraw in humiliation before a single vote was cast in a Democrat primary. It turned out that Biden's biggest attention-grabbing speeches were those that he grabbed from previous politicians. And I'm not talking about a word or two, I'm talking about serial plagiarism, lifting entire paragraphs from a number of politicians, ranging from Hubert Humphrey to JFK to Bobby Kennedy and even a British labor politician named Neil Kinnock. Take a listen, beginning with a speech that Bobby Kennedy gave about the economy in March 1968. Biden stole it nearly 19 years later. We will play a piece from Bobby Kennedy's 1968 speech, and then a piece from Biden's 1987 speech. You can hear the similarities for yourself.
5: But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society.
8: Yet the gross national product we cannot, cannot measure the health, the health of our, our children,
5: children the, quality the quality of our of education, their education, the joy, or of, the their joy of their play.
4: Just a few months later, on June 9, 1987, Biden got more brazen and lifted passages from JFK's inaugural address, possibly one of the most famous of all inauguration speeches. Kennedy delivered it more than 26 years earlier but the words are the same, literally.
5: Let us pledge that our generation of Americans we shall pay, will pay any, any price, price bear, bear any, burden, any burden, accept any challenge, and meet any hardship, to secure the any blessings friend, of prosperity, oppose and the promise any of opportunity, to for our children. the survival and the success of liberty.
4: Despite lifting passages from the most famous family. In the history of American politics, Biden's plagiarism went undetected. It wasn't until the silver-tongued senator went across the pond and stole the speech from British Labor Party, Neil Kinnock that he found himself in hot water. Here is Connie Chung reporting on the controversy for CBS News back in 1987.
1: Democratic presidential candidate Joseph Biden today faces a controversy. Three weeks ago at a debate at the Iowa State Fair, he used phrases
7: identical to those delivered by British Labour Party leader, Neil Kinnock.
5: Biden seemed to be claiming
9: Kinnock's vision and life as his own.
5: And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why am I the first Kinnock
0: in a thousand generations to be able to get the university?
5: Why is it that my wife is sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college.
0: Why is Glennis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university?
5: No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand.
0: Does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had? because they didn't have the time. But
4: Biden didn't stop at stealing Kinnick's words. He stole his identity, claiming that his grandparents also lived the same hardscrabble existence, working as coal miners, just like the Kinnick family.
5: My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in Northeast Pennsylvania now come up after 12 hours and play football. Eight hours underground, and then come up and play football. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. There was no platform upon
4: which they could stand. It was so bad Biden made a joke about it years later, admitting that he didn't have any relatives in his family that were coal miners. This is from an interview with Jon Stewart on The Daily Show.
0: Hell, I might be president now if it weren't for the fact I said my, uh, I had an uncle who was a coal miner. Turned out I didn't have anybody in the coal mines, you know what I mean? Really? I tried that crap, you know, about, you know?
8: <laughs>
4: At the time, Biden denied any knowledge that he had copied any of the speeches. But when reporters dug into Biden's academic record, he knew he was in for a world of hurt. It wasn't just his dismal academic record as an undergraduate at the University of Delaware. It was the fact that, yet again, he was caught plagiarizing, this time for a paper he wrote at Syracuse Law School. He flunked the class and was lucky that he didn't get expelled Yet Biden remained defiant. He thought he could bully his way out of any legitimate questions about his habit of stealing other people's words and even their life story. Listen to him snap at an innocent question from a New Hampshire voter before the New Hampshire primary.
9: Question, what law school did you attend? and where did you place in that class? And the other question oh, is, yes. could you quickly, I, I think we I, I, think I, I probably have right.
5: a much higher IQ than you do, I suspect. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. In the first year Rather than school, leave it there,
4: it Biden mind. followed up his challenge with a series of lies about his academic back record. Back I'm not going to play you his diatribe in its entirety. I'll stop to fact check his claims with the great reporting done by Newsweek and EJ Dion for the New York Times.
5: I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my, in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. In the first year in law school, I
4: decided- Fact check. Newsweek reported that Biden said he had gone to Syracuse on a half scholarship based on financial need, not grades. In his first three semesters at the University of Delaware, Biden's grades were dismal. All were C's or D's, with three exceptions. Two A's in physical education courses, a B in a course on great English writers, and an F in ROTC. That's right, the foreign relations expert, the person people were looking to for his foreign policy chops, got an F in ROTC. Perhaps that's why he got five deferments during the Vietnam War. But I digress.
5: I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only need 123 credits. And I'd be delighted to sit down. Fact and check. My... Biden's
4: off by a factor of three. He didn't receive three degrees. He received a single degree in history and political science. In terms of that award he said he received for political science. No evidence of that can be found. I exaggerate when I'm angry, Mr. Biden said, but I've never gone around telling people things that aren't true about me. Well, you just heard the audio and you heard the facts. So in Joe Biden's world, not telling the truth does not equal lying. It's just exaggerating. In such a world, there's no absolute standard for truth. Looking back at all of this, Hillary Clinton had to ask herself, What the hell were Obama and Holder thinking? How did Biden, a serial plagiarizer, fit into Obama's image of restoring integrity to politics? Clinton was not the only person scratching her head at Obama's pick. Biden was the living, breathing opposite of the new guard Obama promised to usher in as president. But now she needed to finally put it behind her. She needed to learn from it because Biden would probably be her adversary in the 2016 presidential Democrat primary. And now he had the world stage as the vice president. And like Biden, Hillary voted yes to authorize the Iraq war in 2002.
1: The Iraq War polled lower than any war in the history of the United States, including the Vietnam War. During the election, Clinton and Obama had painted Blackwater and its founder, Eric Prince, as symbols of the evils of that ill-considered conflict. Letting four Blackwater contractors off the hook would not play well with voters who needed a scapegoat or two. Remember, anger at the Great Recession and bank bailouts was rising, and would soon lead to the Occupy movement. The last thing Obama needed was more anger, at home or abroad.
4: During a National Security Council meeting in June of 2009, Obama turned to Biden and said, Joe, you take Iraq. This was predicated on Biden's supposed expertise in foreign policy. Biden had been chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when the war was authorized. Any screw-ups in the already shaky situation in Iraq's march toward democracy would land at his doorstep. Also, Biden had been one of the leading proponents of invading Iraq and using service contractors like the men from Blackwater. Nobody, by the way, supported reinstating a national draft to supply the manpower needed to bring stability to the war-torn country and Biden certainly was not in any position to advocate for a draft. But Biden wasn't the only politician second-guessing how Bush conducted the war in Iraq. When Holder became attorney general, he didn't hide his interest in using the raw power of his office to expiate the sins of the Iraq war. In a speech before the American Constitution Society in 2008, Holder had some choice words for the Bush administration.
3: But Other steps taken in the aftermath of the attacks were both excessive and unlawful. Although we did not respond to 9-11 by imprisoning Muslim Americans, our government authorized the use of torture, approved of secret electronic surveillance of American citizens, secretly detained American citizens without due process of law, denied the writ of habeas corpus to hundreds of accused enemy combatants, and authorized the use of procedures that violate both international law and the United States Constitution. Now, I do not question the motives, patriotism of those responsible for these policies. But this does nothing to mitigate the fact that these we steps were wrong when they were initiated and they are wrong today. We owe the American people a reckoning.
1: Holder wasted no time following up. In 2009, he asked a special prosecutor to investigate the CIA's handling of about 100 high-value terrorists captured by American forces on the battlefield. They were held in the Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation program, loathed by liberals and progressives. The move met with objection on both sides of the aisle. For starters, a task force under the Bush administration had already conducted an investigation that absolved the CIA. Now, a bipartisan group of seven former CIA directors voiced their displeasure. The group complained to Obama that Holder's political point scoring exposed CIA employees to an atmosphere of continuous jeopardy that would seriously damage the willingness of many other intelligence officers to take risks to protect the country. CIA Director Leon Panetta made his anger at Holder's action clear in a profanity-laced screaming match with the Attorney General. Later, Holder admitted that he hadn't read the lengthy memos that his own prosecutors prepared, spelling out the reasons for not charging the agents with crimes. In the shark-infested waters of Washington, D.C., prosecuting four nobodies from red state flyover land probably seemed like a way to magically expiate the sins of the war in Iraq. Maybe it seemed like a great way to get retroactive forgiveness for the lousy decisions that placed these men and the tens of thousands of American warfighters and Iraqis in harm's way to begin with. Just 48 hours after Judge Urbina's decision, Clinton and the rest of the Obama administration we're on the receiving end of a number of alarming cables coming from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. In an earlier episode, we talked to Robert Ford, the Chargé d'Affaires—that's the second in command at the embassy—to verify the astonishing messages he was sending and receiving in those first few weeks of 2010. Here's what he said to us.
2: And then in 2009, when Chris Hill arrived as ambassador, I was named the deputy ambassador of the DCM. And the DCM's job is um, kind of the day-to-day manager of the embassy, budgets, security, um, consular affairs, visas, passports. Um, most of the reporting goes through the DCM's office if it doesn't go to the ambassador. So, like, I, I, was, I thank you for sending me those cables, because God knows I've sent out of Iraq, hundreds of cables over my time. And um, so I looked at them, I didn't write any of them. They were written by other people in the embassy, but I approved them and sent them out.
4: It all started just hours after Judge Urbina's ruling. Here's an actor reading Ford's cable from Baghdad, dated January 3rd, 2010.
3: Public outrage has erupted within Iraq over the decision of U.S. District Judge Ricardo Urbina to dismiss the charges brought against Blackwater employees for their role in the deaths of 17 Iraqis on September 16, 2007. Government of Iraq spokesman Ali Aldabag commended the decision on January 1st and called on the U.S. Department of Justice to appeal the decision. He also indicated that the government of Iraq might expel former Blackwater employees from Iraq, potentially complicating security services for the embassy. Members of the Iraqi parliament have even raised holding a referendum on the security agreement.
4: The security agreement, officially called the Status of Forces Agreement and referred to as SOFA, was a big problem for President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. Remember. Biden was the guy Obama deputized to make good on his campaign promise to pull the U.S. troops out of Iraq. Before making good on that promise, they decided to ensure that the upcoming election in March 2010 happened without controversy and without violence. Then there was the small task of stabilizing the new government, something that had quickly proven to be much harder to achieve in reality than to promise in the campaign stump. That meant keeping troops and contractors in Iraq past the 2011 expiration date of the current Status of Forces Agreement. But the Iraqis were now threatening to hold that agreement hostage, unless the Obama administration, quote, did something about Nassau Square. But the Obama administration quickly caved to the political pressure. Not from any compelling evidence that the Nassau Four were the heartless war criminals portrayed in the press, but it was just too good a political opportunity to distance themselves from the Iraq war All they had to do was make sacrificial lambs out of the men involved, regardless of their guilt or innocence. So just like that, four regular American veterans from four small American towns became political pawns and international drama that was front page news.
1: Early in the Obama administration, his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, made a strange boast.
0: You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do
1: before. I guess you can appreciate the man's candor. But in the case of Raven 23, exploiting a crisis meant throwing four American veterans under the bus. And Robert Ford's cables make it clear that that was the playbook. Prosecuting the Blackwater Guards was a political necessity to make Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki look tough. Those are the precise words Ford wrote in the cable. I'm not making this up. These cables effectively admit that any continued prosecution of Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slattin was political theater to benefit Maliki, a foreign leader at the expense of American veterans. Ford said rhetoric was coming from all over Iraq. An influential Shia Imam, also head of Iraq's Human Rights Committee, asked during prayers if the killing of innocents is considered a defense of US national security. Another Iraqi Human Rights Committee member said that Urbina's decision showed disdain for the blood of innocent Iraqis by the US judiciary. The Iraqi Lawyers Union agreed. Another imam on the same day said during prayers that the Blackwater decision shows that Iraqi blood has no value to the Americans.
4: Gina, these cables show how nakedly and vigorously the Iraqis were lobbying to have the Raven 23 case reinstated. It's actually quite shocking because nobody in the administration seemed to understand that we were walking right into a trap. Ford urged Secretary Clinton to, quote, address in some fashion Iraqis perception that justice has not been served, end quote, including, quote, indicating what steps the U.S. Justice Department intends to make to appeal the decision, end quote. Again, note the words there that Ford uses, the Iraqi's perception, not the reality. Ford also reported that Iraqi Vice President Al Mahdi was planning to use an upcoming visit to Washington, D.C. to press for action against the Blackwater Guards. Ford said the matter was, quote, especially sensitive, end quote to Almaty because a Blackwater guard had gotten away with killing his bodyguard in 2006. Eric Prince immediately fired the Blackwater guard, but he had no authority to prosecute him, and the administration did not prosecute the man when he returned to American
2: soil.
1: Mike, the Iraqis were working everyone in the Obama administration and even in Congress to get this accomplished. In a cable dated January 8th, Ford said Ambassador Christopher Hill explained to Attorney General Holder the problems that Judge Urbina's decision was causing in Iraq. Hill said he assured Prime Minister Maliki that the U.S. government took Iraqi feelings very seriously and would continue to take an active interest in the case. On January 11th, The Iraqi vice president brought up the case in a meeting with Senators Joseph Lieberman, John Barrasso, and John Thune. He again stressed the importance of an appeal and again mentioned that a Blackwater employee had killed his bodyguard. Ford's cables warned that the Iraqis were looking for political cover and believed that Judge Urbina's decision would inevitably harm U.S.-Iraqi relations, but as we learned It was a lot more complicated than needing to look tough against the American occupiers for your constituents.
4: Gina, during our research, I read a fascinating book by Emma Skye. She's a Brit who loudly protested the war. She was right there marching up in front in London, but she eventually went on to play a key role in the American war effort. She served as a key advisor to General Ray Odierno and the Coalition Provisional Authority. Skye wrote that the relationship between the two countries was about to come undone anyway, and for reasons that had nothing to do with Raven 2-3. Here's Emma Sagai giving a lecture at Yale University in 2015.
6: You know, during the surge, the level of violence in Iraq decreased dramatically. And we and the Iraqis felt the country's on the right track. It's gonna go in the right direction. In 2010, the national elections were held. Mm High participation, and the results were very, very close, very, very close, contested results. And unfortunately, the U.S. didn't uphold the right of the winning bloc to have first go at trying to form the government. And instead the government, insi- instead the U.S. government insisted on keeping the incumbent, Nouriel Maliki, in power.
8: And why did they do that, do you think?
6: I think because it appeared the easiest option, Obama had campaigned to end the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. It seemed easier to keep the incumbent rather than trying to help a new government be formed with a new leader. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Maliki then went on to follow very sectarian policies, mm-hmm. alienated the Sunni population. There were widespread protests and the Islamic State rose to power.
4: Keep in mind what Emma Sky is saying here. It's outrageous. The US government suppressed the will of the Iraqi people to keep Maliki in power in 2010, just because it was the easiest option to keep our troops and security contractors from getting kicked out of Iraq. We did a deal with the devil. Granted, it was the devil that we knew, but the price was the lives and freedom of four American veterans. So who was Maliki? And why did he want Americans to leave Iraq so badly if we were supporting his regime? And why were we bending over backwards to satisfy him?
1: Let's take that first question. President George W. Bush had to overlook quite a track record of anti-Americanism when he chose Nouriel Maliki to lead post-occupation Iraq. Maliki had spent the previous three decades in exile in Iran and Syria. Maliki led the Islamic Dawah Party's covert operations, mainly against Saddam Hussein's government. Those activities included attacks directed by his Iranian government sponsors, and they included the bombings of the U.S. and French embassies in Kuwait in 1983. Entifad Kanbar was the head of the Iraq National Congress. That's the main opposition to Saddam Hussein in Washington, D.C. He served as a member of Paul Bremer's Governing Council in Iraq and as the Deputy Military Attaché in Washington. In the post-Saddam Iraqi government, Entifad was the spokesman for the Deputy Prime Minister and advisor for national security issues for the Deputy Head of the Iraq Parliament. So what I'm saying here is, Entifad has a deep knowledge of this puzzling decision. Here, he explains how Bush, and Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad put Maliki in power, and why Obama and Biden kept him there.
8: Nur maliki who was appointed by the U.S. Embassy CIA station in Baghdad, he he didn't know he was going to be a prime minister. They called him at night, Khalilzad called him and told him to come for dinner. And at the dinner table, they told him, we're going to make you the the prime minister of Iraq. He dropped his spoon. This guy is responsible for blowing up the Iraqi embassy in Beirut in 1982. He killed 65 people. Wow.
2: And, and this is the same,
4: I, I just, this is important. This is the same person that Joe Biden flew to Iraq after he lost a democratic election and then demanded that he stay in there and not respect the, the votes of the, the people of Iraq, the Democratic vote. And uh, uh,
8: Biden sided with him. Look, what, what Biden and, and Obama did is very dangerous. What Biden and Obama, what Obama did, he continued on the alliance that Bush left him with between the U.S. and the United States but Bush was wary of the Iranians, and he was kind of not opening the door wide open for them. The only difference, Obama wa- opened the door wide for them. Because Obama knew if he does that, they, 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 it would be difficult for the Republicans to go after him. Because he would tell them, you gave me
1: this. American diplomatic and military advisors warned Biden not to back Maliki because of his close ties with Iran, but he ignored them. In fact, he boasted to Emma Skye about his deep understanding of the Iraqi people and the centuries of conflict in the Middle East.
4: Needless to say, Skye was a bit underwhelmed and unimpressed with Joe Biden. She saw his view as rather simplistic. But the question remains, why would Maliki run our troops and contractors out of Iraq if we were protecting his regime? The best answer, and the one we found most often, was articulated by Ali Kaderi, who advised five US ambassadors and was the longest serving American in Iraq. He was one of the advisors who begged Biden to replace Maliki with a leader who wasn't so anti-Sunni and so cozy with Iran. Here's what Khadiri wrote about the situation in the Washington Post in 2014.
9: Our debates mattered little, however, because the most powerful man in Iraq and the Middle East, General Qasim Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force unit of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, was about to resolve the crisis for us. Within days of Biden's visit to Baghdad, Soleimani summoned Iraq's leaders to Tehran. Beholden to him after decades of receiving Iran's cash and support, The Iraqis recognized that the US influence in Iraq was waning as Iranian influence was surging. The Americans will leave you one day, but we will always remain your neighbors, Soleimani said, according to a former Iraqi official briefed on the meeting. After admonishing the feuding Iraqis to work together, Soleimani dictated the outcome on behalf of Iran's supreme leader, Maliki would remain premier, Jalal Talabani a legendary Kurdish guerrilla with decades-long ties to Iran would remain president, and most important, the American military would be made to leave at the end of 2011. Those Iraqi leaders who cooperated, Soleimani said, would continue to benefit from Iran's political cover and cash payments. But those who defied the will of the Islamic Republic would suffer the most dire of consequences.
4: Regardless of your position in the war, Just think about the absurdity of this for one second. Maliki is literally given his marching orders by Iran's top general, and those orders were to run the Americans and their contractors out of Iraq, to let the Iranian militias complete their infiltration of the Iraqi government. So what does Joe Biden do? He walks right into the trap and endorses the plan of one of America's greatest terrorist threats.
1: Biden wanted Maliki in charge, and Maliki's price was an appeal in the Raven 2-3 case. Biden traded the constitutional guarantee of due process for Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slattin for a guarantee that American forces could stay in Iraq. And just like that, they sealed the deal at a press conference on January twenty-third, 2010 in Baghdad.
0: Make, take this opportunity to express my personal regret excuse me for the violence in Kisur involving Blackwater employees in 2007. The United States is determined determined to hold accountable anyone who commits crimes against the Iraqi people. While we fully respect the independence and integrity of the US judicial system we were disappointed by the judge's decision to dismiss the indictment which was based on the way in which some evidence had been acquired. A dismissal, I want to make clear, is not an acquittal. And today I'm announcing that the United States government will appeal this decision. Our Justice Department will file that appeal from the judge's decision next week.
4: Remember, this is the Vice President of the United States selling out American veterans on foreign soil for his own political objectives. Of course, Biden had the excuse of not being familiar with the pressures of battle in a war. As i mentioned before, he took not one, not two, not three, not four, but five deferments to avoid serving in the Vietnam War. He ultimately was disqualified from service for having asthma as a teenager. That's certainly a legitimate reason to be disqualified from serving. But at the time Biden was suffering from teenage asthma, he was also the star of his high school football team. He was also receiving the only A's that he would have received in college for physical education. He even said he played football in college at the University of Delaware. Although, surprise, that proved to be another lie. Oh, I'm sorry, in Biden's words, that was an exaggeration. But that doesn't stop him from meeting any criticism of his foreign policy chops or really anything with a remarkable transformation into G.I. Joe.
1: After Biden's press conference with Maliki, the Iraqi press started the drumbeat. An Iraqi newspaper editorial commented that failure to seek retribution from the criminals and acquitting them of what they have done to the Iraqi people is a bad omen for the Americans who will pay the price of a deepening hatred against them. These feelings will only be diffused through bringing these killers to justice. Another editorial writer claimed that if the U.S. judiciary system is self-respecting and respects the Iraqi people, it would not dare to commit such an immoral disgrace that reveals its phoniness. Pretty soon, the international press had taken up the narrative.
7: A federal judge in Washington has dismissed all charges against the five Blackwater operatives accused of gunning down 14 innocent Iraqis in Baghdad's Nisar Square in September of 2007. Judge Ricardo Urbina's dismissal of the charges on New Year's Eve was met with outrage in Iraq. The Iraqi prime minister's spokesman, Ali al-Daba, vowed to pursue the case and called Judge Urbina's dismissal, quote, unfair and unacceptable.
8: We are sorry that the the federal judge had that verdict. We keep them and we hold them criminals. As per our investigation here in Baghdad, the Blackwater personnel, those five people, they had used excessive force and they didn't follow the rule of engagement and they had killed innocent Iraqi. We
1: One said, reason I feel so strongly about transparency in the judicial system is that I've sat in many criminal trials. I've looked in the defendants' faces and wondered, what if that was me sitting there at that table? So it was chilling to hear the second most powerful person in the world condemn Dustin Hurd, Paul Slough, Nick Slattin, and Evan Liberty before they had a chance to put on a case. I asked Paul Slough's wife, Kristen, what that was like. That must have been the most strange feeling. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and Paul's shoes and thinking about, like, the second most powerful man in the United States coming after me for doing my job. Can you describe what that must, what that felt like?
7: I, I honestly couldn't believe it. You know, honestly, I kind of was in denial. You know, I had read Judge Verbena's opinion, and I was like, you know what, there's no way they're going to make it happen. He's just grandstanding. This is all political. He's just saying what needs to be said to make these people happy right now. And there's no way they're going to succeed because our justice system works. I mean, obviously, this is evidence that our justice system works because it should have never gone to trial, and it's not. So I honestly, I kind of dismissed it or was in denial or just shoved it down. Like, I've been living under all this stress. And here I am for about three weeks, you know, kind of living, you know, without that stress. And I'm just choosing not to believe this. And it still took them, you know, from that point in 2010, like over three years to get, or I think three years to get the actual indictment, um, you know, that signaled we were actually going to end up going to a trial. So for that three-year period, I just kind of chose to believe it wasn't coming back, that it was going to die quietly, that the politics behind the situation were going to go away or were going to change, because political situations change a lot, honestly. So I just kind of thought, no, this is going to go away. This is on its way out. It's going to die a quiet death. They're just saying these things because they have to, to make this other government happy.
1: I asked Paul Slough how he felt when he heard Biden condemn him and his brothers, and why he didn't just flee the country after he heard his own vice president sell him out. Here's what he said.
3: Yeah, so I was on my, uh, uh three big gray mare. I was gathering some cattle and they got out on the neighbor's place and brought through some thick brush and my phone rang as I was coming through a gate. And I stepped off my mare to, to open the gate, which it, was, it wasn't it was a hedge gate, it was a uh, bar and stay gate. But at any rate, I answered the phone, of course, got the message, and uh, my heart just sunk. I was crushed. I, I didn't even, I didn't know heads from tails for a minute. And I literally thought about just loading up my mare and, and grabbing Kristen and taking off.
7: Okay, but you didn't, because
3: why? Well, I didn't take off because, frankly, we'd, we'd done nothing wrong. I mean, we'd, we'd done our job. We'd, we'd not done, I mean, we, our principal got home safe. We had done exactly what we were sent there to do, and there was nothing to run from other than, you know, just being sick to death of going through this, this Rubik's Cube, this this albatross that, you know, regrettably still hangs around our necks.
1: Paul's faith in the system is horribly touching and would have been well-founded if anybody at the DOJ, FBI, or the federal bench had played by the rules. The Obama administration knew from the get-go that it was going to have a big problem proving this case. And not just because of the flaws and misconduct Judge Urbina had cataloged in his opinion. Robert Ford, the number two man at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, knew it when he dispatched his cables. It was going to take some string pulling to make this dog of a case hunt. It simply did not meet the standards of American jurisprudence. Here's what Ford told us.
2: So a couple of things on this, and this is really important to understand. Uh, like you say um, um, controlling the scene and and, uh, taking evidence. What I would say here is we were operating in a foreign country and so uh, beware applying American judicial standards to what foreign countries do. Um, Now the case was tried in the United States, I understand that. So, but I would just say I wouldn't Blame the Justice Department or anyone else for Iraqi failings and you have to deal with the government you have. Like the Justice Department, the FBI's office at the embassy wouldn't have been in a position to pick who on the Iraqi side would do the investigation. So so in a sense the I mean Anybody in the United States government operating in Iraq had these kinds of problems. In the
4: three years it took to bring new indictments, the government actually missed a deadline for filing manslaughter charges against Nick Slatton. They completely forgot. But it was a preview of the incompetence and vindictiveness that would characterize this case. The prosecutors admitted twice in court briefs that they didn't have enough evidence to charge Nick With any crime. But when they offered him a plea deal, he refused. So they struck back and charged him with the only crime that does not carry a statute of limitations, murder. They charged him with a single count of murder for the death of Ahmed Haitham al-Rubia, the driver of the white Kia. This certainly came as news to Ahmed's father, because the DOJ invited him to come to the United States to testify against Nick he refused. He was a man of honor, and he is a man of honor, because this is what he wrote to the FBI when they asked him to falsely testify that Nick slatton had killed his son. History is important.
8: As I read in several newspapers and had been told and talked more than once to US
2: teams I met in the green zone in Baghdad that Paul Slough had killed my son and Jeremy Ridgway had killed my wife.
4: The first had clearly confessed in a protected statement within hours of the incident. This ran true for several years. Changing these charges to others, a serious and risky drift, may put doubt on the honesty of these trials. This grieving father, the person who has the most permission to be the most upset about what happened, turned out to be the most heroic and most virtuous person in this entire drama. And he was not the only person who expected honesty in the American justice system, but would dangerously
3: be let down.
1: Raven 23 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum and Jonathan Compton edited this episode. Mitchell also serves as our associate producer along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Our actors are Kevin Miller, Kurt Brinkman, Elizabeth Benz, Paul Keegan, and Jaden Marquez. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 23 3 You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.